Hello, hello! Welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I'm Chris. I'm Preston. And this week we are finishing Julia Kristeva's Powers of Horror, an essay on abjection. And to kick things off, uh, Preston, um, I'd like to talk to you about incest. Um, that's quite the, the opener there. Yeah, yeah. You're not gonna, not gonna win a lot of people over. No, no, I think out, a lot of people are just one. gonna leave, right? Like, that's, incest, uh, next. Uh... Topics to clear a room with. Okay, so I'm going to push in, I'm going to position two versions of incest, okay? Uh, and let's imagine that everything I'm saying is correct, even though I think I might be wrong. So let's imagine, if we will, the wild twins, Sigmunda and Sieglinda, from Norse mythology and from Wagner's Ring Cycle. Let's imagine that they are an incestuous couple and that they know they're an incestuous couple. If that was the case, what makes them wild is in part their incest. Like their union as incestuous is a marker of them not being a part of society, right? I would agree with that. Okay. Contrast that with the Lannister brother and sister couple from Game of Thrones, where... They are in hiding, in secret, and also an incestuous couple, right? Correct. One is totally outside of society, and the other is so inside of society. But the important thing is that their incest signifies, at least when I watched the first like two seasons, corruption. Definitely. It's like... Yeah. One of the first indicators, aside from, like, you know, music, the way they talk and stuff, that's your yeah. first big clue in the first episode, like, well, clearly these people are bad, brother and sister fucking each other, and not just that, like, in love with each other, know it's wrong societally, and that's why they hide it, and it's just a very clear, like, these people bad people yeah i couldn't agree more so getting to the kristeva who puts an incredible amount of import on this whole text and how we structure society to avoid incest i would argue that only one of those is or close to abject which is the second one yeah the first one is sort of a myth it's of the land of children of Hurin by Tolkien you know it's kind of like it's also right? like super early civilization where we're like well yeah they kind of had to then <laughs> maybe yeah but yes I mean <laughs> Christianity's built on the whole Adam and Eve thing so if Adam and Eve were the only man and woman and then they had kids you can't just go yada 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 humankind no the the yada 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 was a lot of incest a lot a and lot. it's the only way to make the genesis and later chapters of the opening of the old testament make sense is the only way this society works is if there was a lot of incest i guess but that is a great way into kristeva because in chapter three of this text we are confronted with her reading an incorporation of Freud's Totem and Taboo, mm. where he gives us a completely different myth than the Christian myth. 
So he gives us a, I would say what, like not home, like the first homo erectus, I don't know, whatever. It's not a factual thing, but like pre-human, pre right? We're, it's, it's apes, very, they're not like, quite human Greek yet. Greek and Norse mythology creationist kind of stuff. Yeah, sort of. I think it's pretty different though, because at least different from the Bible in the sense that... Oh, definitely different, different than the, the Bible. Bible. But you're, you know, you're right, and you're going to know more about the, the North side. But what Freud gives us as a myth is that one man, the primal father, has the harem of females as his own. And what happens is the other males who are kicked out of this society murder the primal father. And in so doing, create guilt for all of society. And this guilt is put and sort of displaced onto the totem. And they worship the totem in the place of the dead primal father. Mm. Which is not Christian... <laughs> uh, no. It's is very... No, Sky Daddy's still around... Um, at least in the Old Testament, you know. <laughs> so, the similarity there with, like, the Norse mythology is yeah. before mankind, before, like, the realms that are, you know, our existence. Um, you know, there was, I believe it's Ymir, the great giant, Ymir. Um, and uh, he gives birth to Odin? Yeah. I can't remember if it's all the Aesir. I think it might be all the Aesir. But they kill him to create the world. Like, all of the realms are made out of Ymir's body. And then, to go, like, even further, I think there's also, you know, uh, an interesting angle to the separation between the Norse gods as well. Yeah. Um... You have the Aesir, which are, like, your more royal kinds, the ones who reside in uh, um, Asgard. And uh, then you have, which, they're kind of like more of the male side of it, the father figure kind. And right. then you have the more, like, nature and wilds-based one. Is it the the Vanier? And they're more of the feminine side. Yes. And, and there's, the, like, trading back and forth right, between them. But, but there's, like, wars between them and all that fun oh, stuff. Oh, lovely. So that's slightly contrasting with Kristeva, but where it lines up, and at which point I read... What I read in Kristeva is that her feminist take on Freud is that um, we need to we need to include the primal mother. Or we, we need to include what maternity means in this myth. And so we read in maternity, what I think of, what I gleaned is the idea of a primal unity with the mother's body that cannot be achieved. This sort of, she says it's a, what, primal wholeness, if I remember right, mm. that you can't achieve and actually is also not just a source of abjection, but is the source of how we get away from the primal mother is we found our identities 
in her mind a lot of times through writing to get away from the primal mother. So she writes, and we're going to talk about this, but she's talking about religious rituals and she goes, the function of these religious rituals is to ward off the subject's fear of his very own identity sinking irretrievably into the mother. Which is pretty contrasting, right? From the guilt of a dead father figure or, you know, primal father to now we have a sense of forming our identities to escape being what re-enveloped into the womb, Ooh. I guess. <laughs> so would that like fear of re-envelopment and oneness coincide a bit with death? cycle of life you know back to the earth yeah back back to the earth well i think actually one of the things that's interesting about reading this book is i started with that myth on incest about positioning like the wild twins as knowingly incestuous outside of society and incest as a marker of corruption in society because every concept she introduced has introduces has an obscene flip side to it you know, like so much of what she talks about with religion is to hold back objection, is to hold back the obscene side of what is there in the religious rituals. Oh my God. It's... And I'm assuming that has some parallel with your background in the Mormon church, right? Uh, it's... The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Yeah, the Mormon Church of the Jesus Day. You fucking say it all, it's all right? It's so long, my friend. I don't, I don't... I don't understand, like, the rebranding and all this shit. Like, yeah. nah, you're, you're... You're not getting away from Mormons. Like, that's... It's never gonna happen. No matter how many times you change your name, people are still gonna associate you with the crazy polygamous cults. And that's just the way it's gonna be. Yeah. Anyways, um, definitely. There's a lot of ritual and stuff that, um, I mean, when you grow up in it, it just seems normal. It's why I just, I can't wrap my head around, like, converts. Like, my grandma on my dad's side is a convert. Yeah. She, I love my grandma, but yeah. <laughs> when she was younger, she used to do, like, cool stuff. She yeah. lived in New York and went to jazz clubs. Right. In like the 50s and 60s. So, uh... What well, was it? So getting back though, like what, what rituals in the Mormon oh, church? Oh, yeah. So... One of them that's particularly odd that kind of turns a lot of people off. So there's a lot of secrecy around it for one thing. Of is, course. Um, a lot of the temple rituals. Yeah. God, if my parents ever hear this, fucking murder. Um, so there's a lot of odd stuff. Like I still don't know all the details behind it, but um, I remember like I I left the church like when I was 18. Shortly after I turned 18, I was like, all right, I have the justification to confront my parents about this now. Tons of fun. Um. But my little sister and older brother eventually, you know, followed suit. But my little sister, the big thing for her, because, I mean, 
both of them slowly just kind of stepped away. Yeah. But but the temple, um, there's this the, thing in the temple where there's a, like, so like can she, you give like a specific... So one of my cousins is getting married. Okay, and yeah. um, my uh, like aunts and stuff are talking to her about uh, like going through the temple, the, yeah. the ceremonies and stuff that you go through in there. And uh, it like fucked my little sister up, like super, super disturbed by it. And she texted me that night and was like, do you know anything about, like, the temple endowment stuff? I was like, I mean, I, bits and pieces. There's weird stuff with oil and right. and strangers and really weird, like, ceremony stuff. And um, she's like, it just, I kind of learned about that stuff and I've, like just feel really gross and disturbed about it. And I was like, mm. you're experienced. And now I get, she experienced the objection, but not the way she was supposed to. Well, she was supposed to have objection warded off, but my guess would be in a more slightly secular version, the ceremony didn't function correctly. So like one example that, um, just to give, cause we got to give them like really clear examples, right? Is like, um, in LDS church as a practice of not drinking hot liquids. And this is obviously, obviously there's, there's contention as to what they are and that's all fine and good. Okay. But what I would say is that a true believer who drinks a hot liquid accidentally w would vomit. Like they would experience that as not symbolically placeable. Ooh. Right? Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't fit the, obviously <laughs> this is not one that's active but it's in the text, right? Definitely. So, how would you correlate that with, like, the drinking of spoiled milk? The abjection of drinking spoiled milk. Yeah. So, what I would say is pretty simple. So, I mean, I guess you don't know that the milk is spoiled till you drink it. Right. You've but but also, the, the, the spoiled milk is real. Right. The hot is symbolic. There's nothing right. about hotness that gives us a biological disgust. Ah, I, I see what you mean. Yeah, whereas there is obviously a biological component to drinking spoiled milk. Yeah, right. It's how we symbolically make sense of it that it also furthers, or uh, in, in Kristeva's mind, it furthers our identity creation, but also furthers the disgust is because we're just probably biologically not going to accept that, right? Mm. Whereas hot, the reason why I wanted to say the hot liquid aspect is because it's not a real issue. It's not an issue about the object that humans can't find potable. It is a purely religious ceremonial exception. And so that's why I think a true believer would experience the hot as object. Ah, uh, I, yeah. I would I would agree with you there, but I don't know if I that like like that type of true believer. I don't know if that type of true believer actually has ever existed. Like, there's a debate in my mind whether there needs to be some biological component to make things abject. Like, some Ooh. aspect of a thing has to actually be disgusting. But what's interesting is, you know, well, yeah, go for it. The the study that you had mentioned before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is a study. I forget if it's. I, I, I don't know if this study is still active, if it was done under 
good practice, but it showed, if I remember right, a correlation between conservative minds and more of a like conservative politically, if I remember right, thinking and a higher disgust reaction to stuff they didn't accept. Whereas in a liberal mindset, they're being less visceral disgust. Mm. And actually, for the whole second half of the book, she talks about this writer, Celine, who is very conservative. He was he was anti-Semitic, and he was very he was uh, fascist in a certain sense. And what's really fascinating about Celine is you get that disgust, and yet instead of shying away from it, he writes it out. He writes Ooh. out the disgust as if it's as if it's vital to to be inscribed, to be written, to be written down. Mm. So I that makes me think of uh, the book Lolita. Oh, of course, yeah. Like I think that's another one of the most like universally well. Yeah. I think people <laughs> be are be careful with that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Never mind. I don't think it's on the same level as incest. Not even close. But like pedophilia is Yeah. At least for me, that is on the same level. But maybe not for all people. Anyways. Right. That's it's a book that you know, kind of courted a lot of controversy because people are like, he's supporting pedophilia writing this way. And it's like, no. N- <sighs> n- n- no. But it did make you confront some uncomfortable things. Yes. And it is, I think, I think I would say that there's a passage near the end of the book where she's talking about a character in Celine who is the sort of pixie figure where she's like presented as this sort of angelically beautiful young girl. But the way Celine writes about this girl as if she's in a certain sense infinitely desirable. And what Kristeva talks about is that she has none of the qualities of actual sex. Right? Like, there's no... Like, like it's all... Uh, what do you call it? Like, um, edified. Like, it's all this sort of idea of purity involved. Mm. And I think that that theme is really strong in literature. I don't think we, like, accept that today. I I wouldn't accept that today. Like, think of Bruce Springsteen, right? Like, Bruce Springsteen and all of his lyrics is like, This pretty young girl, she was so little, she was the smallest little girl I've ever seen, and I want to have sex with her, you know? And it's like, it's like deeply strange... To me, at least, and I'm sure to a lot of people that in a lot of Bruce Springsteen lyrics, there is this, I think, pretty explicit, like, pedophilia involved. And it kind of not just ruins this, I think it kind of ruins the songs for me a lot of times where I'm listening and it's like, oh, okay. The one for me that I'm like, because it's, it's such a good song and I fucking love the Stooges, but... Sweet Sixteen is an uncomfortable song, but it's is good. Yeah, it's good, but I I mean any number of rock songs, even the Beatles fall into this on Norwegian Wood and other albums where it's like what's desirable is youth. Right? Ooh. And like that's definitely not something I would accept from our art today 
But so is that? I why, think it's there. I think it's kind of abject. Is that why Mick Jagger and Jimmy Page are still alive after all this time and heavy drug use? Was, yeah, they're just consuming the young flesh. With, like thirteen-year-old girl that yeah. got passed around rock bands back then. What was her name? But yeah. But. I think that I think that's it. So like going back though to our religious uh, talk, one thing I think we should summarize about what happens in chapters three through five for Kristeva is she has this really interesting switch at the birth of Christianity, which is that in her vision of paganism, abjection is something external, whereas in Christianity, it brings it to the external. It brings it all internal. Yes. And it's uh, in the concept of so, sin. Yes. You become the source of the objection. Yeah. And you become, we are all sinners, and you have to kind of hold the objection at bay through the word of God. Oh. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's spot on. And then that's why you, like, I mean, every Christian religion... Does the sacrament. Yeah. Which is a cleansing ritual weekly that, you know, because you inevitably will sin because we're not perfect. And we, while we aspire to be like Christ, who was perfect, uh, we can never achieve it. Right. So we got to keep coming back every week. But what's important is that... Cannibalizing Christ. Right. But what's really important, I think, in what you're saying, is that... Yeah, like like, like eating the body and all of those things are important, don't get me wrong. But but like I think what Kristeva would say is it's, it's the language, it's the word of God that holds sin at bay. It's, it's conf- I mean, confessions. Conf- when you confess, you are purging the abject from you. You are confronting it in Catholicism with a man next to you for some reason <laughs> but like which is totally terrible okay. in my opinion but like yeah like there it is so <laughs> I like when she talks about the rituals because there is an interesting thing in um in the Mormon church that they do when it yeah. comes to like your confessions and stuff um so unlike other religions where your confessions are done through like a box and it's semi-anonymous. Yeah. Um, you confess to somebody who, if you've been in the whole ward, your na- like the same neighborhood and ward your whole life. Yeah. You've known this person for years, and you got to go tell them a bunch of stuff. And these are not, once again, unlike other religions, these right. are not people who went to school and trained to do this stuff their whole life. They're not therapists and you know, that kind of stuff. They are normal members of the church who right. receive a calling and they do this for free and they kind of operate as marriage counselors, all this other shit. And uh, from the outside, they operate as like Pinkertons. <laughs> like they're, they're yeah. to enforce the, they're enforcing a certain, well, they're I mean, enforcing they're a you gotta go through to yeah. get like, uh, the, it's called the Bishop's Storehouse. It's how you get free food through the church but you gotta oh. go tell them how much of a piece of shit you are and do stuff here's the real question so in the Lacanian framework a pervert would really enjoy that so like are these lay communities 
people. Like, are they really prepared for a man going in? And they're like, can you confess your sins? Oh my God, yeah. Like, I cooked a squirrel and ate it. And then I had sex with like 20 prostitutes. And it was great. And... Um, I don't know what the squirrel has to do with sin, actually. That would be fine. But, like, you know, like, you, what, you, what if you confess your sins? But the implicit positioning is that you are in the beta position. You are you are lower than the than whoever you're confessing to, by, by default. Like, it has to be. Like, you can't be confessing. Well, I mean, technically, yeah. you're not confessing to this person. Yeah. They are the channel that you're confessing to God through. They've been deputized. And then God provides revelation on how to help these people through their issues. So, like, I can easily picture a person who's going, great, I get free food and I get to enjoy myself. <laughs> Sorry, that's not related, but very fun. I don't know. Getting back to the text. So, well, Wait, yeah, anyways. Yeah, yeah um, Cobra, I, I totally derailed you. Apologies. Yeah, no, I derailed it first. But, anyways, um, after you do this, one of the things that they'll tell you is, like, um... You know, for X amount of time, you should abstain from taking the sacrament. Yeah. So, you're denied the cleansing ritual so that you can face your, uh, I don't know. Like you have more time to face your it. guilt without, yeah. you know, the, uh, that, that cleansing ritual. But, I mean, in, um, I think it's in chapter five. Yeah. The the quote from the Bible that I'm pretty sure the uh, church kind of took this idea from is talking about, you know, not taking it in if you're not worthy. Right. Like his, his word, if you're not worthy of the word. I can't remember what the quote is. It's, let's see, I've got it right here somewhere. Um, ba-ba-bum. Let's see. I'll find it. You'll find it while you do that. So while you're doing that, um, one of the things about religious rituals, including food, that she really harps on that's really interesting is about abjection in food. So the reason I was talking earlier about hot liquids is because she writes, food becomes abject only if it is a border between two distinct entities or territories, a boundary between nature and culture, between the human and the non-human. So there's an interesting aspect of the signification of hot as being distinctly other outside of the culture, which gives it somehow in a sense for the true believer of not only not being potable, but being abject. And the boundary is the state, right? The liquid. The mm. fact that it is potable and is liquid is that boundary line. The fact that it is hot is the boundary line. And the reason why I think that one is a purely symbolic one and not a real one is because not only is there nothing to tell us that hot liquid is bad, the church specifically is harping on equality. And I think that is that boundary line, that sort of fuzziness that really doesn't have any real distinction I mean, if I, that makes sense. At least from what I was told, what they're mm -hmm. aiming at was supposedly coffee. Which they're really then aiming at caffeine. Right. But then they haven't explicitly said caffeine, so there's tons of Mormon people that still drink caffeine. Right. 
And that one's probably a bad example. I'm just using it in the idealized sense, right? To say, like... Oh, I, I definitely think it fits. It's also a fun... Like, it's purely symbolic. Yeah, there's because, nothing that really like, is there. On top of this, like, right. the whole point of the Word of Wisdom was, like, this is revelation from God on how you can be healthy, like, how to take care of your body. But there's a lot of studies that have proven that coffee in the right amounts is good for you. Yeah, it's fine. There's a lot of stuff that in the right amounts is fine. Just fine. It's fine. Yeah. And, you know, the whole weed is for man part of the word of wisdom is like, but wait a minute. Oh yeah. They allow in they they allow in weed which they later had to say no to. Not even no the the wheat part. Wheat is for man. Yeah. Oh what wheat. about yeah. those people with celiacs? Exactly. Clearly yes. demons or lizard people. All right. <laughs> so changing you ready to change to a totally different topic from away from incest and prohibitions on religious types. I want to talk about corpses. Uh, number two on the list of things to clear a room. Yeah, yeah, I want to talk about corpses. So, we've talked about food abjection as, like, a really primal one, right? And I think that, like, there's a hefty biological component to that, obviously. Uh, corpses are amazing to Christeva, right? Because they are, in a sense, what she says is the corpse represents fundamental pollution. And she pulls on another book that's really great called um, Purity and Danger. I've got a good modern example of which, this one too. Yeah, but the idea is that a lot of tribal foundations are built on this idea of pure versus impure objects. And so for Kristeva, the corpse represents fundamental pollution. Mm. Which... I'm not sure if that's so different from my view. I, I, like, if I think of my own, like, phenomenological experience of a corpse, it takes a lot to dress up a dead body to make it anything other than a dead body in a viewing of, like, a casket. That's why I absolutely fucking hate viewings. I mean, I don't like funerals. It seriously ate Viking funeral me. Put me in a boat, light that shit on fire, and just... Kick it out. And we're going to gonna take that seriously, man. Kari takes it very seriously. Because, uh, I mean, I just fucking hate funerals, but viewings. Yeah. So, I grew up in a neighborhood with, like, a lot of old people. So I had, like, surrogate grandparents, essentially. Right. And then as I got older, all these people died, and I had to go to all these viewings and look at these people who looked nothing like how I remembered. Like, it was... Because you remembered them when they were dying. I re and I, <laughs> you remembered them at the point of decay and death. No, this is, like, I was, uh, my mom was good about, like, taking us to see them before it got really bad. I didn't know this, like, at that age. Oh, But as yeah. I've gotten older, I think right. my mom may have intentionally, because my mom was the person in the neighborhood that, like, would visit these people regularly when their own families wouldn't. Like, they'd see more of my mom than their own kids. Uh, and for a while, like, we'd visit them, 
And then at a certain point, my mom would stop asking us to go visit. And I think that was very intentional. That was the point when a decaying body, lifeless, completely turned into dejection, blurred between the inanimate and the organic. Okay, not quite that bad, but almost there on the edge, on the edge a little bit when... It's really bad when you're about to, when you're in hospice, I would say, at the end of hospice. So I like I I think that there's it's not just the decay and the rot of the corpse that causes the objection. Yeah. Because like one of the things is like, "Oh shit, I I know. I know what that feels like." Is I vividly remember every fucking one of those horrible viewings. Yeah. Because it was just a whole new kind of ugh, that like just discomfort. Well, you're, you're so I, I mean, I can put it in her terms. So she says right before it, you know, the corpse, inseparable lining of a human nature whose life is indistinguishable from the symbolic. Like there's a sense that when you see a person. And we talk and we have we have all this language together. We're fully in the symbolic together. And the corpse, it's like, yeah, they have all that minus one quality, which is really important. <laughs> so, like, I would say corpse viewing, viewing or, or, like, not corpse viewing, my God, funeral viewing at the best of times is uncanny. And at the worst of times, it sounds like you experienced it not with any symbolic efficiency, just, like, as viewing a corpse. Yeah, it just, it, it didn't look anything like... Yeah. The people I grew up with, like, you you go through the whole, like, I'm so sorry, you know, all the family members, and then you get to the, the casket, and you're like, who, who the fuck is this? What is this? What, why, why am I doing this? Yeah. What, what is this? It just... No, I think, I think the viewing and talking about that, I think, really fits into this problem of the corpse, in a sense. Now, I had another thought that Kristeva in the first couple chapters briefly mentioned, but I actually wanted to talk about because I think there was more there that she didn't uh, develop, which is the idea of a wound. And the idea of, so like a wound, let's say a big bad wound, a wound that you know, in a sense, will signify the death of that person. Whether it's like 40 gunshots or like an axe to the face or I don't know, whatever it is. It's something horrible. In a sense, our logical brains, I would argue, go, they're not, they're not going to make it. This signifies death. But there's something really terrible, I think, that also happens, which is that with all the, and uh, excuse me for this just horrible description, with all of the sputtering and flowing and gurgling and movement of everything it somehow terrifyingly coincides with an overabundance of life. The assassination of Kennedy. Have you oh. seen the footage? Yeah, yes, yes. It's, it fits it perfectly. Of Jackie Kennedy trying to collect the pieces of his skull off the back of the vehicle as if... As if, if she I can, get him she back can, quick enough, <laughs> I can fix this. I can fix this. I think that 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 also is its own more specific and maybe most horrible, or at least one of the most horrible forms of abjection one could ever go through. And I think most people have never gone through it. 
I think everything we're going to talk about is probably vicarious. The idea that you're collecting the abundance of the object. I mean, right? There's there's no way that she didn't know. Like that you is had a to know. that's an obvious, but yes. What part of the brain is going? Ah, I can fix this. I think it's the part of the brain that's also experiencing objection, right? Like, I think I think that there's, like, the, the part, for me at least, the part of the brain that when there's a... Okay, here's another horrible phenomenon. And again, apologize, apologies to our viewers, but I have to tell you, the book is actually worse than what we're talking about. Um, especially when it gets to the Selene chapters. Um, but, okay. So, in a lot of movies, someone gets shot, someone gets stabbed... And the mark of death in the modern era very clearly is what? It's the blood from the mouth. Blood from the mouth. The sputtering blood from the mouth is, is that's like, you know, oh, that's, that's internal. Because we know that's internal bleeding, right? Or, or I actually, I'm assuming that's what it is. But, but, you know, whatever it is, it ain't looking too good for whoever it is. But if you just think of the phenomenon, it's like life is just gushing forth out into the, out into the world. And that's sort of its own really horrible borderline Ooh. where the signifier of death is coinciding somehow with the signifier of overabundance too much. Uh, I, it's spot on. Imagine finding a corpse halfway through decay. It's Ooh. full of life. There's, there's going to be all sorts of, Animals and whatnot that are gaining sustenance off said corpse. So there is literally life exploding, just not... Not their life. Just not theirs. But, but wait a minute, hold on, that's actually kind of interesting too, because... Wouldn't, would maybe you say that's one of the only reasons why metal bands focus on the horror show of anatomy? Right, because like metal band, like like a corpse, not corpse, Brian, my God, you know, corpse, uh, cannibal, cannibal corpse. corpse. Um, you know, you look at an album cover from Cannibal Corpse. What do you see? Man, those are like junior compared to some of the. I know, shit but I'm just going days. '90s. So like, but in Cannibal Corpse, it's it's a very abject viewing experience. I mean, obviously for us, it's also hilarious and like deeply comical. But like for a lot of people, when they when I first saw as a kid a cover of a Cannibal or Corpse album, my thought was like. God, fuck that. No way, right? Like, no. But what I realized, what's abject about it is, if you look, the skeletons are kind of alive. Everyone, there's, there's this abundance of of life, even though, obviously, that's not possible. I mean, have you seen my Black Dahlia Murder shirt? No, but... It, well, well, Black Dahlia Murder's another one that, like, it's... I really like the art style they do on them. Yeah. But some of them are... A little more horrifying than others, and the shirt that I was like, oh, that's too fucking good. One of the shows we went to of theirs is like a dude in a hazmat suit pulling a guy like his face out of like a vat of acid. Yeah, it's like half his face is like melting away, while the other half is there, but he's still very much alive while while this is happening. So that yeah. is that is a very I mean shit. Oh my god, what about the screams of agony? That's that also is signifying life in a weird way, like an overabundance. Fuck it, Iron Maiden. Eddie, yeah, of they're, course. They're, the mascot is yeah. the living skeleton. The man. living skeleton. Uh, yeah, and it's it's all there to tell you it is profusely 
alive. Now, obviously at later points we'll get to Zizek's very important difference between alive, dead, and undead, but that's mm. not quite now. I would say that there's a num there's innum innumerable examples of this type of abjection, right? So on that borderline. Yeah. While we're talking about corpses, when I was yeah. reading on this one, I was like, oh shit. Whether he did this intentionally or not, I think this was actually a pretty well-written story that kind of uh, talks about how abjection can often be used as a communal tie. Like, experiencing abjection mm. together is, uh, you know, um, not just a self-forming thing, but also is like a major bond-forming thing within, like, cultures and yeah, Society, yeah, totally. Religions, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, of course. That's a big part of the Mormon religion, those rituals and everything that are yeah. forcing you to face the abject are very much part of strengthening the ties of that community. So, um, I still, like, some of his stuff is just so good, and then other things I'm like, well, oh, okay. Stephen King, I think the book is Four Seasons. Yeah, I haven't read it. But the movie, Stand By Me, I think is... Oh, it's a great movie. Got it, yeah. The whole thing is built around these four kids, you know, coming to terms with their identities, dealing with their own shit. Right. Going to see a corpse together. Yeah. And then the viewing is poignant, actually. It's like... A major turning point for all of them. The bullies show up. All this, yeah. All this shit happens. So whether or not it was intentional, like if Stephen King knew that he was writing about abjection and corpses, I don't know if Stephen King ever read Kristeva, but I was like, holy shit, that book's spot on for the way that she talks about like, okay, corpses, and then strengthening communal ties through abjection. It's exactly right. I think that's I think it's a I think it's a great example. Now, personally, my personal experience of that is that the most abject scene is the leeches. <laughs> but because because those type of objects by the way, first of all, let me give you credence. I, I think your idea is correct. I'm just going with a personal whim here. But like oh, no, the I, I love it. Because yeah. I also think leeches are an inherently abject creature. There yeah. is something There's something vaguely to be very Freudian about it. They're one of the few animals where you're like, it just looks like a sex part. Yeah. Without any it's like a, it's the it's the lamella. Ugh. from the horrible yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's like, it's like I mean, it sucks what's the actual leech. shape of a leech what does a resting leech look like oh, I can only picture it moving gross it's <laughs> <That's> pretty good <laughs> but, so leeches a good so like, uh, like, like album Slither the movie you know Slither that'd be kind of like that too or like um I can't believe I'm going to reference this, but, like, tentacle porn. So I've always, like, it's always, it's a running joke, right, of, like, tentacle porn. And you're kind of like, what is the appeal of this? And I, I don't really understand it. And the only way from outside that I understand it is, like, big penis, I guess. Like, overabundance of penises, I guess, would be the, I mean, the I... way it's made into something, I guess. I always think of this anthropology class I took yeah. once where we read this book about like this um 
this tribe that had a belief of, you know, men's penises at night just essentially gaining a mind of their own and just like venturing outside of the hut and impregnating I mean I uh I don't know maybe there's a theme there I don't... no I think there is I mean because like okay well look in Freud we have two options either it's a vagina or it's a dick and I gotta tell you other than vague labial implications I think it's I think it's a it's 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 it sides on the dick side now that's not the only reason why I find it abject. I just I just think that might be one of the few creatures where I'm actually like it's sort of abject because it's vaguely sexual in that way. Like it's ab it's horrifying because it's it doesn't stop moving. Like one of those twisty dildos in a snake. Same thing with snakes for a long time. Yeah. Like, remember how in like I don't know, for a while you had like the sassy ladies with like a python. I yeah. never really got it, but it was like a thing for a while. Yeah, and I, I think, I, again, I think that's another one where I can only imagine that people are gaining the pleasure of it because it's like a like a twisty, turning it's penis. A big, long, twisty dick. I mean, that might be way too reductive, but, like, it's one of those oh, few ones where I'm like, no, I mean, maybe it's, that's, kind of seems like what's there. <laughs> I, I don't know how else. I, I mean... I guess because snakes move all sassy like. I guess. <laughs> but anyway, finishing up with our with our tour of this uh, difficult text, I want to talk a little bit, if we can, about how her view of horror fits into our own views of horror, like what we what you and I think of what is horrifying, and how this cuts its own path right like how, how it's kind of its own view of horror because first of all she references a lot of authors she never references a horror writer per se like she never references poe or lovecraft i don't i don't think if she references poe it's only in passing i think but like there's an idea that which it's more pervasive than we would think like the horror the abject is like i'm kind of surprised she doesn't reference poe because isn't that like I feel like his entire horror style is people facing the abject. The eye in the, you know, the one in the man in the wall, right? Like, yeah, the, I mean, the the raven. The raven. The 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 fall of uh, House Usher. Like, right. All all of these, I think, are very much like people experiencing real, like deep seated, like coming to terms with themselves style of horror mm -hmm. through other objects and it the cask of amontillado the isn't it like you know the cat the the mask of the red death the, the thing evading from slowly from the outside the, the telltale heart like the it's literally like yeah. all his stories i feel like are yeah. are built around this concept but she wants to make it i think this is where maybe both of us were frustrated with this text in a way that we haven't been with other texts is that she doesn't reference any horror movies. And I, I can kind of excuse that because her focus is on writing, right? Like writing is our is the site of the... She has a quote at the, near the end of the book, which is like, writing is the s source of... Writing is the medium of the most abjection. Mm. Over photography, over cinema, 
over music. And I thought a lot about that because, like, I don't know if I agree. I don't. I don't know if I agree with that at all. Where would you... What medium for you has the most... It depends. ...abject qualities? I don't know. I think it really depends. Is there really like, a medium-centric the, way you can think about it? Threenody, the the Hiroshima one. Oh yeah, oh, okay. that is that's kind of so. It's a piece on like everyone. It's um. There's a piece called Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima by Kurzostov Penderecki, and it begins with a wailing string section in the highest register playing grating noise. It was also originally named something non-political. It was like piece number 11 or something like that. And then if I remember right, the Polish government suggested. And it is a horrifying piece of music. Is it like because it's on the borderline between noise and music for you? Like No, if that, if there that... is just, there is something deeply disturbing and horrifying about, about the everything about it. Like... The slow building, like shepherd tone thing that they're doing at parts, where it's yeah. just like growing, then it'll like cut off the way it's mixed. Just I don't know. There's just a lot of parts of it that every time I've had to listen to that, it just made me so deeply uncomfortable, and just yeah. But we got we got to pinpoint it right because remember abjection happens at these these boundary lines it... between two. It's. It's a transgression of boundaries. So, like, like here's here's a way we could go in. Like, like those types of noise sounds would be associated with pain metaphorically. So, uh, I, I think you make a good point here because, um, it makes me think kind of of like uh, how important you know soundtracks are for a lot of horror movies and whatnot. Yeah. So was like what came first did they discover it was a horrifying sound and it made them feel uncomfortable like we should add this to horror movies or was that stuff being put in horror movies for so long what like solidified it as this is the spooky stuff because i definitely think it's the sound before yeah i would agree it's got to be the sound before because Cause like, so like you don't have to understand music theory to hear yeah. like, man, he is not in the right key. If Something like sounds a... wrong. I mean, it's gonna be horrifying in a movie from 1913. You know, it's it's not it's not necessarily. So yeah, I would agree the sound comes before, and I, I guess I think that the boundary it's transgressing is the is the real. Like, so music is this deeply symbolic medium. It's reified by all these codes. And these doctrines, um, which happen as soon as you have an idea like polyphony, as soon as soon as the idea of polyphony exists, you have a boundary line in which you can create the object. Ooh. Right. Like as soon as you have a rule that can be transgressed, where it becomes in the 20th century reaches, I think, in music, a fever pitch in modern and noise music is the idea that the sounds are transgressing into the real there's a piece mm. by there's a piece called um visage means face by luciano berrio which is just a woman and it's a piece of music it's recorded but she goes through sounds that sound like orgasm but she yep. sounds like she's being murdered what? and for me what? it's like 
Yeah, I from remember the, listening to this one too. Yeah, and from the moment it begins, it's abject. Right? Oh, like, it's it is abject. <laughs> I I don't even know how to describe that that one. Well, I can't I think, remember if that came from one of your classes or from one of my theory classes, but I definitely remember that one. Right, because this is where where other texts we've overflowed with discourse about agreements and disagreements i think one of the things that has made it tricky to discuss this text is because what she's getting you to reach is the unnameable oh right like what she's getting you to reach is that place where language fails Fuck. It ties back into where carol narby doesn't it and that is why this is such an influence on carol narby i would say mm. is that why it's so poetic the text is is very labyrinthian and poetic and elliptical it's always going around in circles and yet at the same point all the points she's reaching lead back to the one point which is the unnameable aspect mm. of horror right i mean that that's that's my reading i i like that a lot i i, I like it that's good um i mean It, I think the unnameable is a little bit better than the way that, like, I kind of felt about abjection was, like, this horror that you just can't quite put your finger on, because it's unnameable, it transcends language, like. Yeah, and it's stronger than the uncanny, right? Mm. It's not like you see your friend, but they might be possessed, that's the uncanny. The abjection is your friend... Your friend's face has been melted off, and they're talking to you. Or in in their voice, their their voice is coming out, but their their face is wrong or something. Or you know, part of their face, after they've been consumed by the thing in the thing. Yeah, like that's a the thing is another good one that I think uh, kind of fucks around with a little bit of the uncanny and abject unnameable yes. horror yes i would agree i couldn't read this text without wondering if cinema is the most at least common view that we'd have of the most proliferation of abject images mm. so i would i would love to delve in at some point with this text and decide if I really believe that. Like, is there something about reading something on the page that makes it more, in her view, abject than an image seeing it literally? And I'm not sure, because her main focus was on was on the writers themselves. Oh, right? That's true. The one thing that I might give credit to that argument is... Yeah. It's one of the reasons I tend to like books more than the movies is the responsibility of creating the image is on you. You're not watching somebody else create the image and it being fed. It is you creating it in your mind. And, and do you think, think that, that could be more that... abject? Yes, because it's very personalized. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's not what somebody else was horrified by in this. It is the image your brain creates. Oh, there's this idea. Okay, so, like, 
if a you have a book and the novel says, I walked and saw a corpse, in my mind, there would be infinitesimal flickers of people I know as a corpse. Whereas... Like, I mean, all the imagery right? is based on, like... Your own brain. The There's most no familiar other... people. Right. You so know? then, like, but if you see it in a movie, it's someone else. It's, it's separated. There's a little bit more distance there, so... I might give her credit mm. that the like the feeling of abjection may be a lot more prevalent in literature because the mental image is on you. I I think that is a great point and maybe a good place. I think that's a great point of thought to maybe Call call it a day with our powers of horror adventure. I've I, I've liked this avenue we've taken around horror with just this uh, somewhat seemingly non interconnected originally, but the thread is very obvious. When once we got to Christeva, I was like, oh, Narby Freud, this one that was. That was a nice little grouping. This goes right into our uh, Lovecraft reading. Yeah, so next week we will be touring back to a much more traditional view of horror. Which is, we are going to be reading uh, Lovecraft's essay on horror. And uh, I'm very excited. I think it's going to be great. We're also going to read a couple stories um, and talk about them alongside the essay. It's, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a good time. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Have a good week.